I would like for you to open your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, briefly. This has been our text for the last two or three weeks, and I want to maybe finish it today. Our subject is vanity. Vanity. It's a title nobody wants. Nobody wants to be called vain. It's an experience that no one needs to be in vanity. Bible has a lot to say about vain and vanity, and it's never good. We all think of vanity as being outlandish or proud and arrogant and haughty and cocky or displaying and flaunting and stuff like that, and that's very true. That's a, a general view of what vanity is, but the biblical view is worse than that. Let's read in Matthew 15 again, verse 6. And following, and honor not his father and mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Now, that's a bad thing to make the word of God ineffective. Read it, study it, but just don't count on it to work for you because. And then somebody explains why the word doesn't work. This is what he said. You've made the word of none effect. He said, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth near unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. This is probably historically true down through the ages with what has happened to the modern church, the church of this hour, that so much has been watered down and changed. So much has not worked. They've read about healing, it didn't work. They've read about blessings, it didn't come. They've talked about prosperity, it didn't show up. And so man has talked people out of the expecting those things to happen. And they've changed what the word says to what people just generally like. It's nothing. It's a word of no effect. It's going to church all your life and never changing. It's reading the Bible and studying the Bible and praying about things you never get and never works because somebody has talked you out of the basic fundamental need that every Christian has is faith. It's just a word to most people. They really don't know how it works, don't know why it works, but they've been talked out of it. And consequently, the gospel or Christianity, as is viewed by so many people in the world, it's just another religion, no different than any other religion. We have our ideas. We have our myths, they say. We have our stories about who we follow. But when you come right down to it, Christians are no different than anybody else. They have no more power than anybody else. They can do nothing more than anybody else. It's just a religion. Their book is their book. That's all it is. It doesn't do anything that anybody else's book doesn't do. It's just a book. And consequently, it's vain. It's vanity. The word vanity means useless. It means worthless. And in describing vanity with those two words, it means that it doesn't do anything. It's a stagnant, dead, or an empty situation because it's vain. Jesus said, you honor me with your lips. You assemble and do all the right things with words all the right expressions. You have all the looks and all of that down pat. But he said, your heart's not in it. You're doing it because you've learned this is, as Christians, this is how we're supposed to do it. It's a duty. It's how we function. It's how we come together. 
But the heart's not in it. The heart's not in it, and therefore, everything you say, whatever you do, whatever you build or try to build, whatever you're doing, it's vain. It's useless. That's a disturbing thought to some people, and it's a case for debate and argument, but it's true. Psalm 127, go there. That's where we finished last week. And he mentions the word vanity or vain over there also. Except the Lord build the house, verse 1, they labor in vain who build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman does it in vain. If you're not led by the Lord, if God is not in your plans, your designs, if God Almighty, there's only one God, there's only one God, one true God, and if he is not your source and the reason you're motivated to do what you're doing, it's all vanity. Whether you're building your own life, if you're talking about individually being built up in the Lord, if his word is not what you're using to be built up, but you're doing it another way that seems right unto man, it's vanity. It's vain. And in the end, he might say, I never knew you. And he said, if the watchman, we vote in watchmen, and the watchman is supposed to stand on the wall. They get a badge, and they're recognized in the church. But they're not doing anything as a motivation from the Lord. They're doing it in vain. I believe God in his way is very narrow. I do. I just believe it's a very narrow way, but it's never, ever too narrow that we can't do it. It's just that we have to really want it more than anything else in the world. And we'll never want it until we get a revelation of what he is and what he's leading us into. And the value of that is more than the value of everything else in your life. As Jesus said, you lay it all down to seek his kingdom. Now, verse 2 is where we are today and where I just mentioned last week about vanity. Verse 2 says, It is vain, useless, and worthless for you to rise early, and didn't put a period there, to set up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Now let me say a word about sleep first because this is not the text today. I want to talk about the bread of sorrows or sorrows because a person who never gets past sorrows in this life, whatever it means, is in a vain situation or a vain mode. That's not good. But take sleep and what he says here about it. It is vain for you to rise up early and sit up late. Now, There's no rule in the Bible about what time you should get up. There's nothing in the Bible that says you must get up before dawn. That would be early in the morning. The virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, she got up while it was still night. I don't think that means that all virtuous women get up at dark. Or if you don't get up at dark, you're not virtuous. It doesn't say that. It just says this particular woman, she got up while it was dark. Some people get up at the earliest in the morning when the light is up so they can see what they're doing because they can get more done like that. A lot of people say, well, I like to get up early in the morning, which is good. You don't have to, but they like to do that as a natural course of life. Now, when it comes to religion, it doesn't say that if you're a religious, spiritual person, you have to get up early, but a lot of people do. It doesn't say you can't sleep late, and some of us do. 
I woke up one morning not too terribly long ago. Can I tell this? And I looked over at the clock, and it was 10 minutes till 9. You say, well, I had a half a day's I'm sure you did. <laughs> I'm sure you did. But it was like 10 minutes to 9, and I said, oh. You know, you're, everything's quiet in our house, and all of a sudden, somebody goes, oh. She said, what, what, what? I said, it's 10 minutes till 9. She said, so? <laughs> I said, we got to get up. And she said, why? I said, because it's 10 minutes till 9. We ought to be up. And I won't describe the response, but just, you, know, you just turn over and fix your pillow again. That means so get up then. Help yourself. Go for it. <laughs> but you don't have to get up early. You can if you want to. I think you can get more done if you get up early. I've done it myself, but not all the time. I don't think this verse is so much talking about getting up early and all of that as much as he is at the end of this verse talking about the value of sleep. I know some people think, well, I think we waste our time sleeping. Well, now, wait a minute. The Bible says God gives sleep. It is not a sin to sleep. We're not giraffes. A giraffe, what, sleeps a half hour a day or an hour a day? That's all they ever sleep. They just stand up and that's, that's all they do eating and not sleep, but it's not wrong to sleep. Let me show you a couple things. Would you turn to the book of Job? The book of Job. See, sleep wouldn't be good if, like that one verse in Proverbs 26, it says, as a door turneth upon its hinges, so doth a sluggard upon his bed. That means if you're a man given to sleep, then you're a man who's headed for poverty. So it's not like, you know, you live in order to sleep. I heard a basketball player years ago, they asked him what his favorite pastime was. He said, sleeping. <laughs> well, you know, you sleep a third of your life anyway. But that's his business and that's his choice. But look in Job chapter 33, and let's begin in verse 14. Job 33 and verse 14. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. I think all of you should read it and follow me. It's real interesting because of what God himself says about the reason for sleep for his beloved, for his people, something that God does while you sleep. If you're a learner, if you're learning, if you're seeking to know who God is and you're learning about him through his word, there is something that God does while you listen, while you learn, while you're pondering and meditating and trying to get to the bottom of what God means so you can understand it. There's something that God does. Now listen to this. Verse 14, for God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night when deep sleep falleth upon men and slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction. Now, what does that mean? I can only tell you it means what it says, that God, in his workings, one of his ways that he does things is that he causes us, especially in this hour, the last day, he's causing us to hear things that we can't stop hearing. And then we ponder that because, as he said in verse 14, we're not getting it. We don't perceive it. And then God, while we sleep, when deep sleep falls, when man is slumbering upon his bed, then it says that God 
openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction. Now, I guarantee you that when this happens or whoever this happens to knows what God has said, their life is now going to be affected by what they've heard. They're not going to go attend a meeting and hear a nifty little sermon and then go somewhere because God's going to say something that you can't get rid of. It's in your mind. And then while you're pondering that, meditating on it, as the psalmist said, and you go to sleep, God makes it clear to you so that when you wake up, it's, oh, yeah, I see it. I see it. Now, here's why he does it, especially for you. Verse 17, that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. He keepeth back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. It's divine guidance. It's a divine turning of a life from a way that you should not go into a way you should go, something you should believe. This is one of the blessings of sleep. Maybe you, you go to sleep tonight and say, Lord, seal my instruction. He said, you'll have to listen to it first. But if you have been, he'll say, Lord, seal my instruction. That's one of the things that he does. But it's not sleeping he's talking about here. It's not getting up early and setting up late. What he's talking about here that's vain is for you to do that as a solution to your problems. Because you see, the solution to all of our ills has already been given. And when people say, when is God going to do something? You'll have to realize he already has. Everything that needs to be done has been done. This word is forever settled in heaven. He's given it to you. Your answer is there. And to try to find an answer outside of that or to take matters into your own hands is a vain way to do things. You won't find an answer. You'll probably stumble and struggle through life and get so used to stumbling and struggling that you won't even seek what God has to say about it. You just learn to live with it. And you talk about your problems, you talk about your ills, and talk about your shortcomings and your weaknesses and your failings, and I don't know what we're going to do. And this, you're just feasting in your life to some degree on the bread of sorrows. So now what do we mean by sorrows? The dictionary uses the word forlorn. To be sorrowful is to be forlorn. Well, then it describes forlorn as being bereft or forsaken or miserable. Now, that doesn't mean you can't smile. doesn't mean you can't go to church. doesn't mean you can't be a mom or a dad or, or teach school or work on a job. It just means that your life is plagued with no solutions. You really don't know what you're going to do. You really do hope for the best tomorrow that something better will come in your way, but every night you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because you don't know what to do. This definition he gave also had to do with being desolate. You don't have to be in some little dark corner of the world needing some kind of a drug to perk you up or some butterfly to fly in your room so you can do something. You don't have to be so despondent that you can't function. You can be a miserable person sitting in this room right now. Miserable. Because you're plagued with all the things that you don't know what to do about. You're not even sure right now how you're going to get out of this or how you're going to get through this or what's going to happen to your life. Sorrows. 
heaviness. Words in the Bible, you'll find heaviness. Or you'll find the word distress or anguish or gloom. People that have little joy. They're rarely excited. When you watch them, as I do sometime during a service, when there is a time when God gives us something to be joyful about, they're not. It seems like the whole world begins to be wrapped up in their own life and their own shortcomings and all of that. They can't get out of it. They think about it. They talk about it. They talk to other people about it because in that sense, they're eating the bread of sorrows. There's this sad and lonely isolation or desertion that you feel. Nobody cares. Nobody understands you. Well, this is way over your head, and this is, I don't know what I'm going to do. Nothing seems to be right for me. There's this hopelessness. There's this helplessness. It doesn't mean you walk around with this on your face all the time. On the inside, you are. Jesus said, you Pharisees look good on the outside, but on the inside, the part that God sees, there's nothing good in there. There's nothing on the inside of you that is exuberant about the word of God, which is the solution to your sorrows. It's all like it's still murky and cloudy. I don't know what it means. I don't understand it. I don't perceive it. Maybe you need to go to sleep. Let God seal your instruction. Whatever sorrows is, you can just say it is the opposite of joy. The bread of sorrows is the opposite of the bread of joy, if there is such a thing as bread of joy. Joy. Joy is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual fruit. It's not based on anything except what God said. Happiness, however, is based on what happens. And if things don't happen well in a person's life, a person gets sorrowful or sad or dejected or oppressed or gloomy or full of grief. All of these things that describe situations and attitudes that everybody in this room has experienced in your life. Let me give you a few reasons for sorrow this morning, about six. Six good reasons for sorrow. One is sin. The sinfulness of man has robbed him of his joy and of a peaceful life, just sin. Now, the first mention of the word sorrows in the Bible, the first mention is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, when after the curse, after Eve had sinned and Adam had sinned, the curse was leveled against Eve like this. He had already told Adam that you're going to have to labor, but sweat of your brow the rest of your life, and you're going to find a lot of thistles in your life. You're going to find a lot of briars in your life. Things aren't going to be easy for you. It's not going to be the, the way that God intended for it to be. It's going to be a struggle through this life. That's a given. To Eve, he said this. to use the word sorrows. He said, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. So the word sorrow there describes really the word pain or agony. Not always the same. It's different with some women than with other women. I know that. But it still happened because of the curse. That God never intended that to be that way, but that's the way it was. And he said, in sorrow you shall bring forth your children. That was the first use of the word. And the reason it shall be sorrow is because of sin. 
It didn't say you were just such an awful sinner. You were born in sin. You were born into this world seeking wrong. Nobody had to teach you how to do wrong. You never had to tell your children, now, I want you to learn what sin is. Now, now sin is you have to do wrong. Your kids say, we don't know how to do wrong. Really, they don't know how to do right. And you can look at their faces and know when they've been wrong. Did you do that? Well, you did too, and you know they did. Because it's the nature of Adam. It's the Adamic nature. It's just the man is sinful, and his ways are sinful. His inclinations are to sinfulness and to doing wrong. He's born like that. And as a result of the first sin, sorrow came into the world. And sorrow is a result of sin. If you're not far from it, in the middle of your Bible, in Psalm 38, would you look at a verse of Scripture in Psalms 38, verse 17 and 18? The psalmist said, for I am ready to halt. That doesn't mean stop. It means to fall. I'm ready to fall. Nothing is working for me. I feel like I don't have any assistance from the Lord. I'm messing up. I'm ready to fall. And my sorrow is continually before me. My solutionless life. I go from one dull day to another dull day, from one oppressive non-solution day to another oppressive non-solution day. I try to act cheerful at work and be a good guy and a good girl and all, but when you get right down to it as it pertains to me and my life, who I am and what I am, I am not a happy camper. I don't know how to get through life the way I'm supposed to. I don't know what to do with all the stuff that's knocking on my door and coming into my life. I'm a parent. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I'm an owner of a business and, and the economy and I, I, payrolls and bills. I don't know what to do. And a man sometimes sets up late and tries to find out solutions and he breaks his pencil leads and he gets angry and frustrated and despondent. He eats the bread of sorrows. The sad thing about it is, and the vain part of it is, he goes to church and he's never been taught or he's never listened on how to make application of what God said in his word about his problem. He doesn't, she doesn't know how. People have said, and I would like to think that after all the years we've been here, we've been here a long time. There's still a lot of people don't know what to do. They act like it. They talk like it. They live like it. What more can you say? Do we just teach one message every week until everybody gets it? I'd like that. It comes down to that thing about faith. We'll get to that in a minute. Don't you know how to make application of the word? Or are you not convinced that it'll work? And therefore, you don't. Because nothing else works. God watches over nothing else to perform it. He only watches over his word. That's all we got. But it is full. It's plenty. It does it all. So he said in verse 18, For I will declare my iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. Because that's the problem with the sorrow in his life. Sin. And the one great Work of sin is rebellion. 
It's that little voice that whispers in your ear and says, you don't need God for this. You can do this yourself. Look how smart you are. You don't have to be like those other poor souls that don't know what you know. You're smart. Just do it this way. After all, isn't this the way that you'll be complimented by others around you and in the world if you do it this way? You don't have to turn to God. Don't open that old Bible up and see what's in there and think that's going to work. That Bible doesn't work. He says, the devil says. And so people languish. They're not happy people. The world is not happy. The desolate areas of the city, east end, west end, north side, south side, they're not happy either. People are killed every day in the big cities because they're full of sorrow. They're angry. They lash out. They want solutions, and everything's against them, and it's not their fault. And they keep trying to convince themselves it's not their fault. And they die miserably. They die young. And they die desolate. You see, it could be better. Like the psalmist said here, this is where it starts. This is where the beginning of relief comes. He said, but... I will declare my iniquity. I will be sorry for my sins. Now, the question we ask is, how does this declare your iniquity? And I will be sorry for my sins. What does that mean? Remember the verse in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10? If you don't, let me tell you what it says. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, talking about the kind of sorrow that God sends on you. Did you know that God sends sorrow? God himself sends sorrow. He makes you sorrowful. But like this, in this way, in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, he says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death, because it's killing everybody in it. And it's killing everybody in it because nobody knows what to do about it. And they've never had a revelation of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he is. He's just some mythical figure. They say he came out of a grave in Israel, wherever that is. And he's really not all they said he was. And the whole world goes following after that. But for some of us, it is life. Because when God opens the eyes and you see what the heavenly Father is showing, you see things altogether differently than you ever did before. Now there's hope. Now there is hope. Because somebody has walked into your worthless life and brought himself into it. And with himself, he brings solutions. But he does it first like this. He does it with godly sorrow. He makes you to know your sins, whether it's one day or a series of days, and you begin to realize that you're not a Christian. I was in the Christian church for 100 years. And you realize that throughout the week you cuss and you drink and you talk very nasty and bad and your mind is evil. But there you are on Sunday morning in the place of the holy. 
And then one day, I never was until a certain day, I began to be bothered by that. I realized for no reason I can think of that I am not a sincere or an honest person. I am really a lost man. If I died, I'd go to hell. I didn't like those thoughts. What do you do with that? When that becomes a bowl full of sorrow set on your doorstep that you're going to perish and you're going to hell and you're going to die in your sins, you cool thing. What do you do with that? How do you take that matter into your own hands and convince yourself that that's not true? That's a bowl full of sorrow. Nobody can solve that. Nobody can solve that one. You must die. And if you die without being saved, you perish forever. So God, to rescue you and bring you a repentance unto salvation himself, reveals to you the corruption of your life and your heart. You're a miserable, wretched creature. You're a criminal. You're a sinner. You chase cars. You're a dog. Look at the way you live. Look at the way you talk. Then God gives you flashbacks, and you see your life this past week. You see all the artificial, superficial, nasty, vulgar stuff. All of it flashes back, and you can't argue with God. You can't argue with this. You are what he said you are. I don't care how pretty, magnificent, fast, tough, muscle-bound, intelligent, or nerdy you are. You're lost. You're lost. And if he leaves you alone, you stay lost. But when God begins to break down these barriers against him in your life and begins to make you see your sin like he sees your sin, you begin to feel sorrow, anguish. You don't know what to do about it. You don't know how to cope with this, but something's going on in my life. And then you begin to weep. I did. Many people I've known that really came to grips with their salvation wept over their sins. See, you don't come to Jesus in order to see your dead parents. You don't come to Jesus in order to meet with old saints from yesteryear or some beloved in your family who died before you. You don't want to get saved just to go. You get saved because of your sins. You hate your sin. That's why you get saved, whether you see anybody or not. When your children come to you and they say, I want to be saved, ask them that question. Why? I wouldn't make it a theological situation too much with my children. But I want them to know that the reason God brings us to repentance is because of sin. We have an evil nature about us. We're prone to wrong. And God didn't have to make us aware how prone and ugly we are, but he did for one reason. So you can say, I repent. Forgive me because repentance is a gift. You cannot just one day repent and join church. It is something that God must inspire and God must bring about. And if he doesn't, your life will not change. You just become a religious creature, but you're the same old, same old the rest of your life. But when God brings you to repentance, and all of you can check yourself out, when you truly repent, you truly turn around. I don't believe in wishy-washy, half-hearted Christianity. 
I believe when God breaks the heart and impacts you with himself and you turn to him and you see who he is, you never go back to where you were. Now, I do believe in such a thing called backsliding. And I know that God has a great recovery program. But I don't even think that people that turned away from the Lord could forget all their past. They couldn't. If you can forget it, you're done. A second reason that I've been mentioning along the way is you have sorrow in life because you messed up. You got arrested. Your parents are good people. You know that everybody told you that, but you wanted to find out for yourself about life. So you got arrested one night with a crowd that was drinking. You were with them, so you got put in jail. I only had a beer. You made a choice, a moral and ethical choice to run around with that crowd. You chose him or her to be a companion to fellowship with. If they drink or they carouse or they cuss and tell dirty jokes and you want to be with them, you'll have to drink and carouse and tell the same dirty jokes or laugh at them anyway. I think the Bible says something about who you run around with. Then it says in 1 Corinthians 15, that evil company corrupts, corrupts good morals. You messed up. Maybe it was drugs. Maybe you tried it once. You smoked a joint. And what a feeling. Whoa, man, I can conquer the world. Woo! And then you got caught. And you broke a mother's heart. You broke a father's heart. Had a lot of high hopes for you. Prayed over you. Confessed good things about you. Boasted about you. And then you went out and trashed it. As though you had no respect for your parents whatsoever. Because you have no respect for your own life that God gave you. You messed up. You messed up. Maybe it was you got pregnant. You knew better. I've stumbled over words here for a long time trying not to say exactly what I want to say so we can kind of get the point without saying it. Talk about dress, don't dress to certain ways because that makes lust from boys follow after you, not because of your moral qualities, but because of your body. And they don't get close to you, your body, just because you got a pretty face. It's not your face they're interested in. But you're so insecure as a young lady. Maybe your daddy never loved you right. I don't know. You're looking for some man or some boy to love on you, so you knew better, but, well, you know, we're going to get married anyway, or whatever they say today, well, everybody's doing it. Look at the movies. Look at the TV. Everybody does. I mean, let's be like everybody, and you messed up. Oh, you got what you wanted. You had your experience. Now you got to pay for it. What are you going to do now? And a lot of kids don't know what to do. Of course, you can go get an abortion. You can have bloody hands before God. You can murder your child. People do it all the time. Our government voted it legal. And we've killed, what, 50-some million of them? You know, it's just a wad of cells. It breathes and has a heart, has a mouth, lungs, and ears, and eyes, and wiggles. But it's just a mass of cells, people have been told. We live in a murderous society. If there's one plague on America, one single plague on this nation that's going to cause it to be judged, it's that. If one event in all the history of this country, which is a young nation, has caused it to be set up for judgment, it's that. Because it is still a law, they still do it. Hands that shed innocent blood, the Bible says God hates. 
Maybe you conceived and had a child. Maybe you went and had an abortion. Now you've committed two sins. You've denied a life from coming into this world, but didn't have a chance because of your choices. Shame on you. Shame on you for both what you did to get that way and for doing what you did after you got that way. That's what sin does to people. It makes you think it's okay or it's not so bad or something of that sort. Or maybe you just grew up and became a rowdy party type person and your fame spreads in the community to the sadness of your mother and dad. There's a lot of verses in Proverbs about this. One says, he that begatteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow. And the father of a fool hath no joy. Because while a man holds and a mother holds that newborn baby that everybody wants to see and they always say, aren't they cute? I guess. They all look the same to me, but isn't he or she cute? And, and everybody has such high hopes, and he get him a little ball and a little Bible put in his crib, and all he's going to be so good, and one day he grows up to be a hoodlum, and you eat the bread of sorrows. What do you do with this? Without Christ, what do you do with it? Thirdly, maybe it's sorrow because of death. A verse that we use at funerals a lot, and I haven't had very many funerals here over the years. We haven't had many Hospital visits or very many funerals in the past 28 years. We've had a few, but not much. But one verse that I have used are those times I've had to do this. I read this verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not. That ye sorrow not. As others which have no hope, which have no solutions. No hope and no solutions. I know that one thing in this life is for sure. Not only will you have trouble, but you will die because of sin. Both of them. We die because of sin. We have trouble because of sin. Sin is a fact. Death is a fact. Taxes are not a fact, but the people say one thing in life, you're going to pay taxes and die. Well, you're going to at least die. And a lot of people come to the point of death with all that dark, horrifying uncertainty about what happens next because they know there's more to life than just living. Some people, I guess, do really think that when you die, there's just a vacuum. It's a void. There's nothing. There's no existence. That's not true. There is something else out there. There is another life. But if you have no hope, if you have nothing you're looking forward to, something that you can count on, something that is a certainty and a surety after death, if you don't have that, you're in bad shape. I have a little booklet. I used to have it. It's called Voices Beyond the Grave. And it describes the experiences a lot of people have when they come to the end of their life. And man, some of the famous people, and a lot of people died screaming. Famous, mighty rulers, leaders, important, popular, famous people. When they came to the point of their death, they came there without Christ. They lived their whole life in vain. They lived their whole life uselessly and worthlessly because at the end of it, they wasted it. It amounted to nothing. It was of no value. 
They got nothing to look forward to but an uncertain darkness, which they will know what that uncertain darkness is when they get on the other side. When they die and you go to the funeral, a lot of people are like that. They don't know what's happened to these people. They have no hope of heaven. They've been to church their whole life. It's never been a reality. We're all sad when somebody dies. When somebody goes, it's normal and it's ordinary when somebody you love, somebody you knew, or somebody you respected dies to have a certain amount of sorrow, grief, sadness. It becomes the bread of sorrows if you never get over it, if you never go beyond that. I've looked in too many caskets. I think I've quit looking in caskets. I don't even go up there to look at them anymore because all I see is a painted body with no spirit. I'd rather remember what I remembered about them in the good days without seeing something in a box. If people go look in caskets, that's all right. But a lot of people look at death as final. It's over. And for us, it's not over. Paul said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. Now, for me to stay here is better for you because you need somebody to, to teach and instruct and prod and push and smack around on you. But he said, but I would rather be with the Lord. To be departed from this life is to be involved in the next life. And as a Christian, you pass from death unto life. You're going to be greeted by somebody, and there's going to be something there. And Jesus said, your eye hasn't seen, your ear hasn't heard. You've never even thought of what God has prepared for those that love him. Now, that has meaning to us. I hope it does. Because no man knows the hour of his death. Life is like a vapor of smoke. It comes and it goes. You have to make the right choices in this life, or when life goes, you go with it. Because death comes. But we don't sorrow as those who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus is coming again to get us. He said he would. And if that's not true, this book is not true. If this book is not true, let's go home. But if this book is true, we better have the wisdom to heed it. Because it will be even as he said it would be. Let me give you a fourth reason. It's trials. Trials. Temptations is a reason for sorrow. First Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 3. I'm sure you're familiar with this, but he said in First Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. Is it? Is that real? It's there. It is waiting on you. Now, go on. Wherein, verse 6, you greatly rejoice. When's the last time we greatly rejoiced over our inheritance in heaven? Oh, um, well, I'm willing to rejoice. My name is written in heaven. You ever seen the book? No, but I believe in the book. How do you know your name's in it? I don't know my name's in it. I believe my name is in it. I walk by faith and not by sight. How do I know this book is true? I don't know. I believe it's true. It's faith. 
I believe what he said is true. I believe. And my belief becomes my life. We live by faith. If you don't have faith, you're living by something else, and it's not really working for you. I promise you. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many kinds of temptation. The word heaviness is also the word for sorrows. You could read it like this. You are in sorrows through many kinds of temptations that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold which perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heaviness. Yes, heaviness. Go back the book to the left, James chapter 1 and verse 2. Remember this? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers or different kinds of temptations and testings. He said, knowing this. Now, he said, count it joy because you know this. Count it joy because this is real to you. That your faith being tested is bringing forth endurance, which endurance shall secure you all the way till Jesus comes. You endure to the end and you make it. Amen? Amen. That's what he said. The word rejoicer, the word joy is in there for a reason. First Peter 4, Peter said, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which are to try you as though something strange has happened to you, but rejoice. These trials are divinely arranged. These situations in life are divinely arranged by God for you to prove that you have faith. Church membership doesn't work. Attendance every week doesn't work. The only thing that works is faith. We're glad everybody's here. I've quit assuming that any time there's a problem with somebody here or of any degree that they have faith. I don't know that you do. I don't know that people have faith just because they go somewhere. Faith is an act. It's an act of your will, your response to his word, to live and act like is, is true. And if it is true, then I am what he says I am because I believe I am. I may not feel better when I pray. I may not look better when I pray. I may not sound better when I pray. But when I pray, I believe. And the Almighty God brings it to pass. Faith is the substance that gives reality to the thing you're wanting. That's what faith does. And when that lacks, we have a word here that sounds good and we like all of this, but... Something's not kicking in. Something's not responding. All it takes is faith. The one thing that makes vanity vanish is faith. The one thing that makes vanity and vainness vanish is faith. That's what it takes. We'll get more to that in just a minute. What about chastening? Chastening. Doesn't Hebrews chapter 12 say now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous? That is another word translated sorrow. No chastening, no invasion of God in my life to instruct me, correct me, or inform me with whatever he does to inform me with. No chastening for the present seems to be 
joyous, but sorrowful. It doesn't seem to be fun. Have you ever heard somebody say, maybe you haven't. Well, since I've been going to that church, man, I ain't teaching on this and that, and all I, I've just been struggling. Well, that's a good thing. If you're taking God at his word, because this is your opportunity to prove and demonstrate not only to God, but to the rest of us that you believe. Listen to me, all of you, every one of you. Anybody can go sit in a corner of your life and admit you're not doing good and do nothing about it. You're eating the bread of sorrows yourself. You are. God didn't bring anybody here to languish. He didn't bring anybody here to be a critic or anything difficult. He brought you here to effect a change in everybody's life, to refine us, to bring us out of darkness into his marvelous light, to set us up on that rock and establish our going from glory to glory to glory until the end we're a body filled with him. Joyful. And the world is getting worse and worse, and God's people are getting closer and closer. Like the martyrs. The martyrs died on the crosses in Nero's garden in Rome. They lit the hillside of Rome up with burning Christians. They had a smile on their face, and they sang hymns until they died. Why? Why weren't they languishing and saw, what have I done wrong? Why are you doing it? I'm not doing Why didn't they do that? Because all of those old things had been passed away and God had brought them light. And they saw that the price you're going to have to pay to walk with him might include this. And when it came to that, they joyfully surrendered their lives. And the moment death took place, they were in the presence of God. That's not bad. I wonder how many of you this morning would like to just right now and I snap my fingers, go on and be in heaven. You say, I'd hate to leave everything here. Stay here then. <laughs> you can have what's out of my house. There's nothing like what God has for us. But in order to prepare us, he must often chasten us to correct us, get us alone, get us aside and deal with us. Listen to what Luke wrote in Acts 14, 22. He said, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom. Many times, our tribulation is a teaching experience. It is. God shows us. Paul had a shipwreck, didn't he? And it was 2 Corinthians 1, I think he was writing. He said, we despaired. We had the sentence of death in us. We didn't believe we were going to live. Here's a great apostle in touch with the Lord. He said, we were convinced that this was it. We were going to die. But God spared us in order to show us. And so his trials and his testing was a learning experience. Sixthly, this hostile world that we live in is also a reason for sorrows. Not only trials and chastenings and death and messing up and sin, but just the world you're in. None of us in this room escapes this. None of us do. We don't escape sorrowful events in our life. Nothing just goes your way. It doesn't always go the way you want it to. 
It's life. You're living in a world that is hostile, especially to Christians. As I said, Acts 14, 22, he said, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom. Tribulations in this world. Tribulation, why? Your testimony, for one, you say you believe in Jesus. You say you believe the Lord's coming soon. You believe that God heals. Not many want to go that far, but we will. God heals. God delivers. And God blesses. And then people look at you with a fine tooth comb or a microscope, and they look for evidence of it. It's important for us to live by faith so they can see some evidence of it. Isn't there a verse that the Bible says, Be not slothful, but followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises? There should be evidence in all of our lives that Christ has made a change in us. We should be well. Don't quit on me now. We should be blessed. We should be able to give a testimony that we haven't had a pill in our body in 30-some-odd years. No treatments, pills, deductions for going on 40 years. Who's ever heard of such a... That should be all of our testimony. Greater is he that is in us and he that is in the world. But you have to walk a lot of things out when all this comes, and you're going to have to put up with the mockery of the world and the scoffers in this world. Yeah, you Christians, you all believe in healing. Look at, look at all the sick people. You believe in healing once you go out to the hospital and empty the hospitals out. We could turn around and say to them, why don't you go down to Skid Row and save all the bums? Well, the bums don't want to be saved. People don't want to be healed. Well, they do want to be healed. Tell them how God wants them to do and how he wants them to live and how he wants them to act to be healed, and you see how many of them do. They'd rather have their pills. You take their pills away from them, they panic because that's where their heart is. Mine was too once, and it stayed that way for a long time, and it was a process. It was a growth. But he delivered us. Our testimony is that of a Christian, a follower of Jesus. He is my source. He is my strength. He is my light. He is my hope. He is my peace. He is my joy. He's my righteousness. He's everything. And so you not only confess that, but you begin to live like that. It's true because this is the way you do it. The world's going to hate you. Jesus said in this world, in John 16, he said, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. Trouble doesn't have to defeat you. Trouble can bring a bread of sorrows into your life. You don't have to eat it. Because in closing, the condition for getting rid of all this stuff is faith. The way you get rid of all of it is faith. Where does it say that at? Well, let's just try this one. Let me just pick a book. Uh, how about Luke? You ever heard of Luke? Uh, pick a number. How many chapters in Luke? 24? 22. Let's say Luke 20. Let's just pick one out of our head. Luke 20. I'm being facetious. Verse 31. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, the devil hath desired thee that he may sift thee as wheat. But he said, but I have prayed for you that your love for the brethren not fail. Ain't what he said. That's a good thing, but that's not what he said. I prayed for you that your church membership will never be lost. Ain't what he said. That may not be a good thing. 
depending on the church. What did he say? What did Jesus Christ say? I have prayed for thee, what? That thy faith fail thee not. What if you don't have it to begin with and the devil gets a hold of it? Then what do you do? You eat the bread of sorrows. Because, 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 for you, the word of God is not a solution to the problems in your life. And the reason they're not is because of your ignorance of the word. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people go into captivity, Isaiah said, because they have no knowledge. And yet when the word is taught, it doesn't just create faith because it's taught. You have to give heed to it. You can be where the atmosphere is saturated with the word of faith. That doesn't mean you're going to be a believer. It means that what it takes to believe is being presented to you. But the condition of your heart, what the heart man believes. Oh, God. If we don't have a heart for this, then there's nothing that's going to work. Because for everything to be the way God wants it to be, you've got to have a heart for this. And your heart has to plow forward. You have to seek for this as for a treasure. Teach me thy way, O Lord, that I may advance beyond everybody else in the church and be the smartest one most looked up to, one in here. Write a book, be on the radio. Teach me thy way, O Lord, for one reason, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Open mine eyes, as psalmist said, to behold wondrous things from thy law. Make me to prevail. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. For I choose as an act of my will to trust in thee. This is the solution. God said he will do, and what, 8,000 promises in the Bible? This is what he said he would do? That he will do it. What happens if we don't have any faith? Turn to Mark 4. The last two or three verses in Mark chapter 4. And look at verse 38 through 40. Mark 4. We know this story well. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep. How many of you believe that Jesus was not stressed out because of the storm? How many of you believe that Jesus wasn't concerned about the storm? How do you know he wasn't? How many of you know that when Peter was in prison, destined to die the very next day, that he was asleep in the prison, Acts chapter 12. An angel had to wake him up. I'd say they had a solution. They knew something. Well, we'd have had a prayer meeting for sure because they had a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 12. But Peter, he was just... Can you imagine a boat violently rocking in the waves as in Mark chapter 4, just flopping this way and water splashing everywhere and, and 11 other men in the boat yelling about dying? And you're back there sleeping? And somebody woke you up? Master, we're dying. Don't you care that we're dying? Aren't you concerned that we're about to go under? Well, let's see if it says anything like that. All right. 
Verse 38, he was in the hind part of the ship asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? That's what they believe for. We're dying for sure. This is the big one. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea. How many of you know this is spiritual? This is something spiritual here. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And you could hear the boat as it was finally settling down, making those little flapping noises. And the little waves that go, you know, a little go away from the boat, and they're all sitting there with their eyes like this. And Jesus looked at him and he said, This is the way that I have chosen to love you. <laughs> that what he said? This is how I am expressing my love. It's normal to be full of fear, and it's okay. I, I love you, and I'll stop your problems. That's the way it's told today. Because if you tell it Jesus' way, you have no love. Now, you know they say that. You're harsh. Harsh. Shh. Mean. Where's your love? That's too narrow. We had not even said it yet, and you're complaining. Listen to it. Here's what he said in verse 40. And he said unto them, why are you so fearful? That's the bread of sorrows. You're afraid because you're going to fail. You don't know what to do. This isn't going to work. What am I going to do? I'm an awful person. Oh, no. He said, why are you? Not the world, but those who followed him. Why are you so fearful? Now, what's the rest of it say? How is it you have no love? Faith. Oh, does that say faith? It is there, isn't it? How is it you have no faith? Wow. Oh, remember the Sermon on the Mount? I know you do, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Remember Matthew 6? He said, what, five times, take no thought? That means don't worry. And one time he said, don't take any thought. Don't even be concerned or worry about and stressed out about and eating the bread of sorrows about your life. He said, your life is not yours. I bought you. You belong to me. You trust me to take care of you. You're surrounding your life with all the stuff I didn't give you. If God doesn't build this thing, it'll fall. You've got to burn your bridges and live on his terms. Oh, what a popular message that is. What a book that sells. What a tape. You can't make them fast enough for people to listen to it. How is it, he said, that you take thought for so many things? You're concerned about your life, what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. You are troubled about so many things. It's going to snow a whole inch, and we're all about to die. We might get a dusting, and oh, this is a big one. <laughs> dusting, we had four inches. I know. I know. Four inches. Ooh. Didn't he say something in the Bible like this? Oh, you have little faith. And in every case, they were stressed out over something. They forgot to take bread, and they started arguing about, you know, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What well, is about bread? You know, leaven and bread go together, so we don't have any bread. You're going to fuss at us again. And he discerning the thought said, why are you talking about bread? Don't you remember how many thousands we fed with just a sack lunch and how much we had left over? And how many we fed over here and how much we had? Have you all been paying any attention at all to what I'm saying? How are you talking about not having bread? 
boy, you're eating the bread of sorrows, and we're not even talking about bread. But people are like that who don't pay attention, see. Or Peter was walking on the sea, remember that? Lifted Peter up, come. Remember what Jesus said to him when he began to sink? Oh, ye of gigantic posture. You know what Jesus said to Peter when he grabbed him by the hair? Remember what Jesus said? Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Does he say it today to the church, this end time modernized church? Does he say it again? Oh, you have little faith. Why are you doubting? Why are you so uncertain about things of life? You're having meetings and big conferences and big gatherings to deal with life's problems. They're already solved. They're in this book. You release them here. First you hide this in your heart, and then you release it by faith. That is, my heart embraces it. I believe it's true. I'm going to act like it's true. I'm going to live like it's true because I believe it is true. Be careful for nothing. Be careful, Paul wrote, for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You take the bread of sorrows and throw it out to the chickens. Throw it to the chickens. Eagles fly up in the air. Chickens are down in a lot. The nasty things. The bread of sorrows belongs to chickens. But the high and lofty one has given us meat from heaven, manna, from heaven and the victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. First John 5, 4. The victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. Hallelujah for that. And this is the victory. Victory means to triumph over. Nikao or Nike, a Greek word. It's not a tennis shoe. It's a Greek word which means to overcome. Victory, prevail. The victory that prevails in your life that is designed by the Almighty God to prevail in any circumstance is what? Even whose faith? No, the preacher's faith. You know, it's not your faith. You don't have any. The preacher has it all. Whose faith? Our faith. Didn't Jesus say one time, be it unto you according to the preacher's faith? What did he say then? Be it unto you according to your faith. Well, I don't have much. It only takes a crumb. A crumb that falls on the floor. They even Something that chicken have a hard time finding. There's enough power in a crumb of children's bread to deliver you from all your problems. So don't work a miracle. And make a mountain out of a molehill. People do that all the time. Sit there and say, this was a little problem. Now look how big it is. I don't know what I'm going to do. Let's call the preacher. No. Won't you shut down calling the preacher for a little while? And why don't you call God? You got a hotline. It's always open. I think it says, come boldly. Dial H-E-416. Come boldly to the throne of grace in time of what? Need. Need. That you might what? Obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. And yet, when you say that today, I hope it's not true here. It just goes over people's heads. I've heard that before. But it never works. But it should work.
Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord, twice in Isaiah, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 51, therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall what? Catch a hat. You know what catch a hat means? It means you're going to leave. Somebody gets a hat. They used to wear hats and put the hat on and leave. Sorrow and mourning shall flee. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old men together. La, 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 la. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> and then it says, for I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will comfort them. And they'll sorrow no more. Be it unto me, Almighty God, as I have spoken this morning. And may it be to all of these here who believe. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for causing us to hear your loving kindness. Thank you for leading us and guiding us. This may be a special day, a destined day for somebody's life here this morning. It may not be something I've said, but something you said while I was speaking, Lord. That's what your anointing does. A day in which somebody's life is located and the heart is singled out with a need to come to Christ. It may be. It may be the day that somebody, Lord, will make a decision to quit loafing and to become zealous for Jesus, to seek first his kingdom instead of seeking a solution to the bread of sorrows. Deliver us from a vain life and from doubt and unbelief, Lord. It makes us vain. Help us to take advantage of this moment, this hour, what you're saying and what you're doing to us, and deliver us from everything that would cause us to be judged. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.